welcome to the In Session Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Etzler, joined today by state government reporter Samantha Hogan. Samantha, how's it going? Well, I survived. We're so finally done. I guess that, yeah, we're finally done. Uh, now the hard part actually begins because now all the ball, uh, the bills are going to go into effect, you know, either immediately in June or in October. And we're going to see how these legislative decisions actually play out in the real world. Right. And for our listeners, if you haven't been paying attention, yesterday was uh, sign E die. So the last day of the legislative session, this will be the in session finale. Um, so we're going to cover everything. Let's, re- everything. let's review it all. But first, we're going to we're going to start with some some not so great news. Um, Speaker of the House, Michael Bush, uh, died Sunday. A lot of you have probably heard of it if you've been paying attention. But can you sort of just sum up? This was a different last day in Annapolis. So it was my first last day. um, But for Michael Bush, it would have been you know, several decades here in the state house, and it actually would have been his uh, 16th sine die as Speaker of the House. And so the General Assembly really mourned the loss of um, him on Monday. He died of complications from pneumonia on Sunday afternoon, so just hours before the final day of session began. Um, we had heard that he had been placed on a ventilator earlier that day on Sunday, and um, his condition unfortunately continued to deter- deteriorate, and uh, he d- uh, did not survive. Um, His two daughters and his wife gathered in the chamber on Monday evening uh, just for some memorial um, that the joint chambers uh, held for him. And there were tears throughout the day um, in both the Senate and the House um, in his memory. People only had great things to say about Michael Bush, which I think is what makes this passing so tragic. Uh, His old campaign slogan, send a good man to Annapolis, um, came up and uh, people just said, you know, that really embodied uh, Mike Bush, who was apparently a football coach and really? yeah he, he apparently he coached football and uh when one of the uh, minority whip in the house uh got his first call from him when he uh from bush when he was elected he uh asked if he if he knew a, a, a guy and he's like yeah that's my dad and he he tell uh, bush tells this long story about how he was coaching a team and this uh this running back guy caught the final touchdown or threw the final touchdown and it was his dad and he goes and he never forgave me for it because they <laughs> lo- bush's team lost to that day um and so he kind of joked about that and it was a lighthearted moment um but uh, they they draped uh, the speaker's desk actually in black cloth all day and like i said they held a joint session at 11:30 at night and you know, just really remembered him. And on the stroke of midnight, which usually would be marked with balloon drops and a celebration that, you know, thousands of bills have been considered by the state government. Instead, it was marked by a moment of silence Mm -hmm. in his memory. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I kind of remember, and I think somebody pointed it out on social media uh, from him, is on on long days, he would wear sneakers because you're back behind the podium. So no one can really see. So he he wanted to be comfortable back there. And I believe it was the speaker pro tem and uh, I Forgive me if I get this wrong. Adrian Jones. That's correct. Okay. Yes. Um, and she did the same thing. She wore the sneakers for the long day behind yeah. there. And I couldn't figure out why several ladies had whipped out their cell phones in the press area and were <laughs> trying to take pictures of her shoes. And I was like, come on, yeah. we're going to be here till midnight. No wonder she's not in heels. And they're like, no, no, like Speaker Bush used little, to do this too. So it tip, was a yeah. little hat tip to him for sure. So that actually was really sweet. Yeah. I, I want to move on though, because you know, there, there was a lot of stuff that we covered in, in session in these 90 days. And one of the biggest things 
was the the talk of the Kerwin Commission and what would happen with it. And we had uh, a resolution and kind of a blueprint, you know, with still some work going forward, but but the groundwork has been laid with it. Yeah, so actually one of Bush's lasting legacies in the General Assembly will be his work on education. And the state took a definitive step forward uh, in this session by approving the blueprint for Maryland's future. Um, and the blueprint lays out improvements for educational opportunities for low-income students, uh, a path to universal pre-K, raising teacher salaries, and setting up an independent inspector general's office to investigate fraud, waste, and abuse of public funds in the public school system. Um, one of the uh, key things that are gonna you're going to see in the first year is that schools that have 80% or more of their students who qualify for free and reduced price meals will be considered what is an eligible school for the Concentration of Poverty School uh, grant program. And each eligible school is going to receive nearly $249,000 in each of the next two fiscal years, so that's 2020 and 2021 to implement um, a suite of uh, things to improve both their students' lives and their communities' lives uh, by addressing transportation, house, counseling, and enrichment services for students. Now, we are going to see some of that money come here locally to FCPS um, because Hillcrest and Waverly Elementary Schools both do qualify. They have just over 80% of their students on free and reduced price meals, which means that their families are living at a, at a significant level below poverty um, as recognized by the federal government. So definitely bringing new New resources to these schools and we will see a little bit of it come to Frederick County though the needs are much greater in Baltimore City, Baltimore County, and Prince George's County which was something that had been pointed out by Senator Michael Huff um, but he was actually still really happy to see um, several hundred thousand dollars if not the millions of dollars that will be coming to Frederick mm -hmm. just even in these first two years. Um, the blueprint is also going to encourage counties to provide their teachers a 3% raise in 2020 um, because then they'll be able to tap into even more money from the state in 2021, but they've got to do that first 3% raise on their own. So that uh, that's aimed at retaining and keeping teachers um, and high-quality teachers and setting them onto a professional pathway. And then in the meantime, the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education is going to be working on some new funding formulas and how they're going to prioritize all these goals that they've laid out in their report in order to really implement uh, these things in the classroom. And they're going to be coming back to the General Assembly in 2020 with a larger bill on how to implement all those changes. I did have a chance to speak with Delegate Ken Kerr, and he said uh, that he was hoping that in next year's bill they can really work on promoting apprenticeships and mid-skill careers for students that are exiting high school. Uh, Kerr has spent the past 25 years in higher ed and he works at Frederick Community College and he you know he has kind of some of this insider knowledge on how FCPS and Frederick Community College have been working together over the past half decade in order to prepare students to go and get that bachelor's degree. And he says that they've actually been pretty successful on this. But what they have not done so well is promoting those pathways for careers that require more than a high school diploma but less than a four-year degree. And so that's something that he really talks about. They're called modern apprenticeships, preparing kids to exit high school and start earning money and also put themselves on a career. So we're not talking about working in a grocery store comes right. to mind you know that not that there's anything wrong with that but you know a more skilled practice maybe working on hvac maybe you know taking over the family farm maybe opening a brewing company so so many of these opportunities that requires a, a specialized knowledge but not per se your four-year college degree 
did he mention in with this um, at all about uh, teacher apprenticeships? Because he, he when he was on the Board of Education, he was sponsoring kind of an initiative trying to get funding for, for teacher apprenticeships. So I didn't know if that was a part of this or, or not. I, I, I bet those are details that we'll see fleshed out in 2020. Um, he kind of hinted it at a little bit. He did say that um, Frederick Community College has been good about bringing in, especially those uh, secondary mm-hmm. uh, science educators and, and, uh, and other uh, subjects as well, bringing them into the community college, getting them summer internships or getting them summer training so that, you know, they're, they're continuing to hone their craft. They're bringing the best and most up-to-date information to their students when in, in high school and in middle school. He um with the with the blueprint it was pretty widely supported but I, I, if I remember from your reporting um there was one member of the Frederick County delegation delegate Barry Silberti who who was not in support of it and I thought the argument was interesting so I would like, want to go a little bit into that the the argument is essentially yes we have the funding now in this budget but we don't have the funding for future years so that's why he was I voting think against it is that is that right that's right so. Uh, Barry Silberti has a little bit of a slightly more nuanced argument, which is that he doesn't think that more money is going to fix um, our public school system. He thinks that there are deeper rooted social issues that we have to address um, with family structures, with respect, with, uh, you know, punishments in the in the school systems and a more holistic look at um, in social and environmental factors. Um, but what it's going to come down to and what you're actually going to see probably several Republicans join him on is the fact that where is the money going to come from if we're going to put money into the school system? So um, individuals like Senator Michael Huff, uh, Delegate Dan Cox, uh, Delegate Jesse Pippi, we saw them supporting the bill um, in 2020 because it's already financed completely mm-hmm. in the state budget. Where the question starts to arise is can we meet what we have committed ourselves to in 2021, which after we look at state revenues, after we look at the lockbox, are they going to have to raise taxes to do this? And the likelihood is, if not in 2021, then in subsequent years later, while we're in the throes of really, uh, you know, investing in enhancing our public education, there's going to have to be some kind of tax increase. Um, and where that is, I'm not sure. Um, but that's where you're going to start seeing Republicans deviating away where maybe they support public education, but they've a lot of them have signed pledges saying that they will not raise taxes. Mm-hmm. And that that's going to be a problem. It would seem it would seem to me sort of short sighted then to approve this bill or to vote for this bill, even though the funding is already there, when you're pledged to not pledged to not raising taxes, but and you're then, gonna have to, probably. Probably if you're gonna do everything that's in the ultimate goal, right? And will we have to extend the phase in period? Will we have to roll back on some of those goals? Those are questions that I'm sure are going to come up in 2020. You know, how ambitious are we going to be? Um, and are we going to stick to the Crow and Commission's timeline for doing this? Are we going to, you know, mandate or are we going to suggest that counties do this? Mm-hmm. And so, though, you know, that's that's where we're going to have accountability and uh, questions. Interesting. I, I want to move on again real quick. Um, we've talked a lot about the handgun review board. Yes, we um, have. <laughs> and it's gone now. It's so, gone. So we don't have to talk about it. Poof. <laughs> and it was gone. No. Um, so, yeah, the House and the Senate have agreed in the majority to abolish the board. It was an emergency bill. It means that it has taken immediate effect. 
Um, all appeals of denied or restricted concealed handgun permits will now go to the Office of Administrative Hearings. Uh, Republicans fought a hard battle against eliminating these, uh, the board in the last few days of the General Assembly. Delegate Dan Cox, in particular, um, asked very targeted questions of uh, Senator Pamela Beidel, who was the sponsor of the legislation, as did Jesse, uh, Delegate Jesse Pippi and other Republicans in the House Judiciary Committee, to the point where they actually offended her. And How so? Um, I mean, so when you are presenting a bill to a committee, you are not allowed to ask questions. Only the members of the committee are allowed to ask questions of you. But they they were grilling her like she was in a courthouse. Um, and a lot of them are lawyers. I mean, Delegate Dan Cox <laughs> has his own law firm. So they, you know, I think some of those questions can feel... They're going for a certain answer. Mm-hmm. You know, they know how to, they know they know how the game is played. Um, and I spoke with Dan Cox afterwards, and he said that he didn't feel like he was acting inappropriately. He thought that it was his responsibility for constituents who potentially are going to face a harder pathway to appealing a, a, a denied or restricted concealed handgun permit that he had to stand up and he had to ask really tough questions of her. And he did bring up some some case law that she wasn't familiar with. He did bring up a really interesting point that the Maryland State Police. Um, who are in charge of determining if someone should be allowed to have a concealed handgun permit also provide some of the training to the Office of Administrative um, Hearings judges who will be adjudicating these cases now. And that was something that really hadn't come to light before he did that. And I did confirm that with Maryland State Police. Um, They provide presentations on how they go about um, determining if someone gets a concealed handgun. Um, So is he using he's using that as a conflict of interest? Kind of. Okay. You know, he's saying the people that are training these judges to look uh, to, to determine if someone should have a concealed handgun permit are, are the same people who are making that determination. So are you prejudi- prejudicing the, the judge in any way of you know, because the way that they're going to be looking at it is how the Maryland State Police who are making the decisions are already looking at it, especially since the Maryland State Police are, you know, essentially the other person in mm. in the appeal the other party in the appeal um because you're trying to overturn their decision and the whole reason that the handgun permit review board was dissolved was because it was overturning the uh, maryland state police's decisions 82 percent of the time in right. 2018 which uh was very startling to a lot of the senators who initially brought up this whole petition to um to, uh, to eliminate the board um, there was also a last-ditch effort uh, to derail the legislation in the House where Republicans tried to amend the law so that actually the burden of proof would be on the Maryland State Police to prove that a person didn't that didn't need to have a concealed handgun rather than um, people having to go to the MSP now and say, I need a handgun. And they also tried to change um, the good and substantial reason, um, which is current the current criteria in Maryland law for having a concealed handgun permit. Both measures failed. Um, actually, the vice chairwoman of uh, judiciary said, hey, come back next year with a bill to, to change this if you think that the good and substantial reason is is wrong. And you and I know well, that, <laughs> that actually there was a year. bill. Yeah. I mean, it happens every year. To, uh, our Senator uh, Michael Huff, you know, right. uh, brings in this bill habitually <laughs> to say that self-protection and personal protection and uh, self-defense are, are good enough, good and substantial reasons to have a concealed handgun. And what did it do? It got voted down. Right. By judicial I, I proceedings. You, I bet whoever brought that up was, was very confident that there will be a bill and that it will be voted down again next year. I just found it ironic. I was <laughs> yes. like, but there was a bill. Right. That's funny. Um, there was some, uh, I believe this was really late breaking uh, with the Clean Energy Jobs Act. And you sort of tell me what happened with that because I, I kind of missed 
the whole end of it. I was well, you had to probably be on, fast asleep. Yeah, I was gonna say you had to be on Twitter between eight thirty <laughs> and ten p.m. to uh, to walk uh, to have me walk you through it. Um, though it actually started a little bit earlier than that. So Thursday night, I happened to run um, into an individual who has been uh, really advocating uh, for this bill, and I've gotten to know through some other environmental. Um, stories that I have covered in Annapolis. And uh, she said, I think you might want to look at economic matters uh, tomorrow. And I was like, well, that's interesting, because as far as I know, um, the Clean Energy Jobs Act is is stuck in rules. And mm-hmm. rules is kind of this procedural roadblock where bills get stuck in, um, where they have to be voted out after certain dates in order to go to a signed committee, which can give a, a bill a favorable or an unfavorable report. So I'm getting really into the weeds right now, but I promise we're headed out. So I did have to uh, have a chance to speak with Senator Brian Feldman, who's from Montgomery County, who has really championed this bill um, for multiple years. He's been um, with the state legislator since 2004, when the first uh, renewable portfolio standard went into effect. And so essentially what he was seeking to do this year was put the state onto a pathway to reach 50 percent renewable energy by 2030. So that's essentially within the next decade. And uh, it will also substantially increase the amount of in-state solar electricity that we're producing, as well as offshore wind. And uh, the General Assembly, as we were saying, really ran down the clock on passing this piece of legislation. Um, And so when House rules decided very late on Thursday night and then acted on Friday morning to vote the bill out, they sent it um, over to Economic Matters, uh, where they heavily, 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 heavily change the bill on Friday afternoon. And, um, you know, as someone that has watched some bills uh, in the past, you get concerned that the chamber that has already passed that because the Senate had passed this earlier in the session, Mm -hmm. that they might not agree with the changes that are being made. And then you're going to have to restart the process all over again. Um, But because we were so down to the wire, remember, this is Friday. The House had agreed to go into an extra session on Saturday, but the Senate hadn't. And then we have signee die on Monday. So we're talking about literally the last three days. um, And they're heavily, heavily changing this controversial bill. Um, But it turns out that the bill goes to the full House um, and it's approved on Saturday. And then on Sunday, uh, the Senate agrees to concur and then they debate the bill late into Monday and it passes. So now the bill is headed to the governor's desk um, where who knows <laughs> it could be vetoed. Um, Hogan vetoed the last increase to the renewable portfolio standard in 2016 um, but the General Assembly did override it in 2017. I believe that they should have the votes in 2020 if he should choose to veto it to um, have a, a, a veto proof override. Um, there are concerns still, and I think these are concerns that we see even reflected locally in Frederick County about where this new solar is all going to be built, because currently we have a goal of 1.95% of utilities power being sourced from in-state solar. By the end of the year, that needs to get to 5.5%. So what we did between 2004 and 2019, we're going to essentially do five times as much. May a little, I guess my math is a little bit off because we're almost at two percent. Um, but there's a be- so it's not that you really have to build it because I can see the look of panic in your eyes. So people have built solar and have not sold their solar renewable energy credits for it. And so credits are the currency that we use to say that so, like that. A, so Potomac Edison goes out and buys these credits to say yes, five point five percent of my electricity our electricity in maryland is sourced from solar 
or when we say 50% by 2030, they go out completely onto PJM's grid and they say, okay, I'm going to buy from these acceptable renewable sources so that 50% can be offset by renewable sources. So we're not building all this brand new stuff. The carve out for solar and for wind will be built in state. Everything else, the 50% are our lofty goals of getting to 100% um, within two decades. That's all stuff that we might source from out of state. Some of it might come from in a state, but a lot of it's going to come from out of state. A lot of it's going to come from existing sources. And essentially, it's creating this market where we can buy and sell all these credits. And I know what I sound, said sounds complicated, but that's actually like- Is there the, an app for that? The, <laughs> not yet to my knowledge, but talk to First Energy about that. Maybe they want to get on yeah, it. I feel like um, there should be. Yeah. And actually there's some uh, some push actually add some transparency about who's buying and who's selling all these wrecks. So anyway, um, to get from the 1.95% uh, of solar energy that we have in gr on, on the ground, on roofs right now, to get to 5.5% isn't going to be as hard because we do have a backlog of credits mm -hmm. that haven't been sold onto the market yet. And then what happens if we don't? If we don't have those credits? If we don't get to 5.5. There's, there's, there's no real penalties built into the system like you're not going to get fined but there are these things called alternative compliance payments acps and so if if you're potomac edison and i'm pepco and you can only buy 4.9 percent of your your needed solar carve out well you can pay an alternative compliance payment to make up for that and that, that point six yeah for okay. that point six and so you just you pay you pay for it kind of like how we have developers pay alternative fees right mitigation fees mitigation fees yeah. so and then it kind of also acts as as a cap because if 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 a credit is worth less you're gonna you're gonna pay more you're gonna buy that credit rather than pay the alternative right. compliance so there are the there there's a really complex system of checks and balances into this system a lot of people criticize it as a subsidy for renewable energy and why are we after um two decades still it's still subsidizing 15 years subsidizing a, a subsidizing a system but uh, some people were saying, well, we, we've subsidized coal and natural gas mm -hmm. for, you know, decades. You know, why can't we be subsidizing renewable energy now? There's so many layers to this. I wish we could get into it all. Uh, something I just wanted to go back to, those large-scale solar energy um, facilities, which we've seen some local fights over here in Frederick County, the latest of which is the Biggs Ford Whitmore, Whit, uh, Whitmore I believe, mm -hmm. uh, Whitmore property. Um, that which uh, the county council just rejected the application for is going back to the Maryland Public Service Commission, which handles all of our utilities and rate paying um, questions. Um, statewide, the government has agreed to um, a review um, in the intervening year, um, and they're going to be looking at rules or possible guidance for the placement of utility scale solar facilities and where those should be placed in the states. A lot of Republicans that represent uh, rural farm districts where the land is flat, the land is already clear, and the ground is good to put solar panels on. They, they're really worried about taking active and productive farmland out of production because of solar companies coming in and saying, hey, you're, you don't have to plant corn. I will pay you just as much as you would on the commodity market, and it's and it's guaranteed. So um, we are looking – they are going to be looking at that, and that's something I think that we'll definitely be following here at the FMP. Yeah, I, I want to kind of bring that local connection because uh, we – 
I wouldn't say we have flat land, but we have some, we have some, some flat farm land. districts. Yeah. We got some hills and stuff. It's uh, uh, but will that our our county's current solar ordinance is fairly restrictive? Do you see that having to open up just in order to meet this goal, or is there enough that you can get? through residential and smaller, I think it would be the 10 tillable acres. Uh, is it 10 tillable acres or 10%? Uh, 10% of tillable okay. acres up to 750 acres. Not So that means 75 acres okay. maximum. W- yeah. would, you, would you think that that's enough, that that's open enough to be able to meet the goals or would the, or the county going to have to? So I think the Frederick County Council has already come to the conclusion that it's yeah. too restrictive. Um, I mean, we saw MC Keegan Air really leading the charge two years ago to craft this ordinance. I mean, it started with, I think, a 15-mile buffer of US-15 um, because that is our journey through hollowed mm. ground. And then also trying to protect prime soils, also trying to protect neighbors um, from these potentially intrusively large um, solar developments um, and just trying to really pump the brakes on things but I think they're seeing especially from from the Biggs Ford property that it is potentially way too restrictive because where do you put it and and this also becomes a property rights problem that we've you know heard time and time again on the Monocacy Scenic River which is how can you tell a farmer who's raised, raised beef cattle or maybe raised soybeans on his property um, for years and years and years, and he always gets to decide what he wants to do. Why can't you tell him that he, he can't raise right. solar panels there? Why can't he have that there for 25 years and make a profit off of that? It's not the county's property. It's, I mean, the county just put solar panels with Tesla onto its uh, closed landfill and they're going to be putting solar panels next to its wastewater treatment plant to offset some of its power costs. So why does the county then get to come in and say what a farm can and cannot put on its property? At the same time, the Maryland, uh, the Frederick County Farm Bureau has been very concerned about taking food producing land out and putting you know it into a power producing land so i do think that there there's going to be a debate i think that we already see that brewing um our county reporter steve bonell has been doing a great job following this um i think this is i think we've learned a lot in the past year and a half that this ordinance has been in place and we're going to potentially see a more nuanced conversation about this happening but i do think we're going to see it see the rules be loosened because you can't you can't put a solar solar field right. up with the rules that we currently have. You're, you're probably, at least in my circle, the most plugged into environmental concern. Plugged in. Yeah. <laughs> environmental, uh, that was pun intended, um, to environmental circles and what's going on environmentally in, in the state. And, and I'm curious if anybody's brought this up because I saw it in, in Phoenix and I, I thought it was fascinating. Has anybody mentioned solar arrays as roofs for parking lots? Yes. It happened at it happened at every school in Phoenix and I was fascinated by it. Yeah. Actually, well, yes. Do we foresee that coming? Uh, you see some of it in Virginia and a little bit in DC. The question is snow. Hmm. So that that's my understanding of it at least. You you got to have a certain pitch in order for the snow to 
the panels are warm like they're they're a dark material so you would it would the snow would slide mm-hmm. off but you got to have some kind of angle mm-hmm. on it I, I republicans were also throwing it out at the last minute saying like why aren't we incentivizing um building and you know parking roof structures out of solar panels rather than trying to take up our prime far- farmland this is all stuff that's going to be worked out in that um solar siting um study um in 2019 i think it's an interesting concept but it probably is not the only solution. Is it's yeah, they, it's a they sim- don't have to worry about snow in Phoenix. So. Yeah, you know. Well, I it does it snow at all? I, I no really. no. So I think it's an interesting proposition, but I'm not positive. It's 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 the it's the golden nugget that everyone. Yeah, I was hopes curious if anybody was bringing it up. Yeah, no, and they definitely do build them. Okay. Um, but uh, it was kind of more of a throwaway. Mm-hmm. Why not this instead? Right. When it wasn't the you're never going to replace a hundred acre right. solar utility facility with right. a couple parking hard, hard to find a hundred acre parking lot. <laughs> um, we, we talked a little bit about some uh, of the local implications of, of the clean energy jobs um, act. I, I want to talk about one of the big things, two of our local legislators worked on this session and, and Michael Huff has Senator Michael Huff has been a, a huge proponent of sentencing reform for the last couple of years now, um, and him and Delegate Dan Cox worked together on some of that. And so I, I wanted you to just kind of explain that because we haven't talked about it much on here. No, we haven't because it's kind of been this bill that had a lot of momentum early in the session. We saw the Senate uh, pass this bill on February 14th. I mean, that was pretty early. And then it came to a screeching halt in the House for no good reason. And if you had read the bill, you're like, oh, this like makes a lot of sense. And I spoke to uh, Senator Michael Huff and he had really great things to say about it. And you're like, oh my goodness, this this is an absolute extension of what the state has been doing for multiple years since 2015 in its Justice Reinvestment Act, which is looking at sentencing. Are we appropriately penalizing individuals who are charged with crimes? Does it does the crime match the punishment? Um, you know, trying to get non-violent offenders um, out of prison, back, you know, have expungible records and just get on with life and, you know, be productive members of society. And so what uh, Senator Michael Huff had really championed, and he brought uh, freshman delegate Dan Cox on to work with him this session, was to create a task force to study all the crimes and penalties that incur in law in Maryland and assess whether a systematic framework should be established um, to kind of create... um, parity perhaps in in the state's penal code you know making sure that should we be tearing things one two three in misdemeanors nonviolent, giving things um just grouping like crimes together making sure those sentences are um similar and so um this was something that uh chairman uh bobby zirkin of the senate judicial proceedings committee noticed as a as a key step because him and um Michael Huff had worked together um, to look at expungement um, uh, just, I think, last year, and they couldn't pull all mm-hmm. nonviolent um, uh, crimes uh, in in this from the state code. And they went one by one. And he gave a great example. Um, there's a one, two, three, and four burglaries. Fourth is the lowest. Uh, one, two, and three get progressively higher the lower the number is. They made one, two, and three expungible. And because they were going haphazardly through the code, 
they missed fourth. So your lowest level <laughs> <laughs> burglary uh, charge is not expungeable. And I don't, I, I believe that they're planning to correct that. But what a system would do is allow you to look more holistically at all of these uh, things and make those, you were not making snap decisions mm-hmm. on a one by one crime basis. Um, so uh, Bobby Zirkin did have. Uh, that a, seems egregious. Uh, the the fourth yeah. one yeah, well, i think it was a human error i mean right wow. and do we want our state penal code to be based on human error yeah. um and so he had a discussion with the uh, house judiciary committee's chair um and they got that bill moving um the uh cox's version of the bill passed the house on over the weekend and then um they breezed it through the senate i mean it went from rules immediately to judicial proceedings who voted out favorably who sent it to the floor who did their two votes on it and um passed um that evening um so that was a good save uh for everyone they're gonna have two years to work on that so it's not gonna be changed Mm -hmm. overnight um but we should uh chairman bobby zergan was very excited about this Mm -hmm. um about this task force um and then the other uh one i think that you alluded to with your question was that um another one of our freshman delegates ken kerr um also had some wins this session because he was the lead sponsor on revisions to the prescription drug monitoring program which allows doctors to track who what and when um prescribed um an individual a controlled uh medication and uh this uh uh, change will help Maryland and other states share information, um, which is important if you think about the geography of Frederick County, right? How easy it would be to cross state lines and to seek an opioid prescriptions if you had a problem, if you were addicted to opioids. And for Virginia or for Maryland or for West Virginia or Delaware to not know that you're already getting prescribed opioids from one or two uh, doctors inside your state. And so um, what they've seen this program be able to do was there were actually 313 fewer opioid prescriptions written in 2018 than in 2017. 313,000. 313,000. Yeah, sorry if I (laughs) forgot the three zeros there (laughs) on the end. And it it gets even more significant when you look back to 2015 when there was a peak of 3 million opioid prescriptions written. There were uh, there compared to 2018, there were 785,000 less. I mean, that's just a few shy of a million. I opioid it's almost, prescriptions. It's almost a, th- a third reduction. Yeah. So this this is significant. It, it's definitely having an impact. And hopefully when we see less prescription opioids on the market, we're going to see less people turning um, to uh, heroin later right. because they've had that first exposure. Um, Kerr was also uh, working on a, a landmark piece of legislation that will ideally help the state control prescription drug prices. Um, what this does is establish a five-member prescription drug affordability board to review the cost of certain prescription drugs. And then it also is going to um, create a prescription drug affordability stakeholder council, which will have 25 members um, that will advise the board. And the board and council will review drug prices that are um, attached to inflation or cost more than $100 per month per dose per unit. Um, and they will uh, make decisions about whether certain caps should be put on these. Um, the board's decisions will be eligible for appeal. And then by December 31st of 2020, the two groups um, are going to have to complete a report on how drug shortages may affect the cost of prescription drugs and recommend strategies to make the drugs more affordable in the state. They will also have to study other states that collect data on drug prices and whether Maryland could share that data. Potentially going to be challenged in court. Uh, Delegate Kerr made that guess um, when we had this discussion. Uh, On, On what grounds? People... 
so there's so many different groups involved in prescription drug pricing um, that to add transparency to it, people are going to have to start releasing their piece of the information. And, you know, if you're Pfizer, if you're another big drug manufacturer, you might not want clarity on how, you know, your name brand or your generic is priced and if it's priced the same in California and how you reached your unit price. So uh, it's possible that manufacturers, distributors, pharmacists aren't going to want people to to know how they reach those decisions. And the easiest way to stop that or delay that from happening is to sue. Yeah. Hard, hard to empathize with the drug uh, manufacturers yeah. on that one. I mean, reach, research and development of a pharmaceutical we're not we're not downplaying that AstraZeneca does it right down the street from us you know they it's it's millions if not billions of dollars to come up with a drug but the question is should they be allowed to be pricing that differently for different people for different states um and are are we artificially inflating it's hard it's hard to argue against the transparency for the drug yeah i mean i think we would all like to see more transparency and and if if the price is justifiable the price is justifiable but no one has been able to prove right. that it is at this point so that's that's super interesting um and something obviously we're going to watch and maryland's really kind of taking the lead on that as, as a state uh, nationwide on the prescription drug pricing i want to ask a little bit of a fun question for okay. your time in Minneapolis. <laughs> i'm going to ask you to call some people out uh which legislator gets the media friendliness award the easiest to deal with uh delegate karen lewis young will always like if she's just sitting in her office she'll let you walk right in uh but i have to say delegate carol Krim will call you out when she doesn't <laughs> think that you're covering something she asked me why i wasn't covering delegate lasanti when she was uh being censured mm-hmm. by the house we decided to go with uh the associated press's coverage of that and some of our other media um friends so that we could focus on some more local bills but not downplaying that that was definitely something mm-hmm. important definitely but she wasn't seeing it because she right. wasn't getting her paper every day she was seeing more of our online presence um and she also uh will uh just send me pictures sometimes as will senator michael huff he'll just send me pictures of paper he's like did you see this and i was like no but thank you um and that usually led to a story that day you know they're very clued in they want their constituents to know these things so i i really do think that those three seasoned vets um definitely and i have to give kudos to uh senator ron young who always answers always answers his phone mm-hmm. so that's impressive too so our, our vets for sure media have it down um the freshman will get there yeah uh, <laughs> well that's my next question freshman you were most impressed with you know i thought pippi really came out strong this year um he was decisive in what bills he wanted to put in he had very specific issues that he wanted to tackle he looked at the county's ethics ordinance even though it didn't pan out exactly how he wanted it was a step in the right direction he also did this overhaul to the human trafficking uh laws which uh really got applause um in both chambers um and then he also uh you know worked on a few other you know smaller things now, kind of in the opposite, Delegate Dan Cox went for volume. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this guy had like 20 bills and a lot of them with, were withdrawn, not because they were bad ideas, but because the advocates were like, whoa, we like your idea, but we need to refine it. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see a lot of 
uh, ideas come back with more support next year from him. Um, and then, you know, Delegate Ken Kerr, nothing against him. He just, you know, was a little bit out of his element this year because he's spent so long in education, right? We're doing really important things with education, but he's not in the committee that works on it. Right. He's in health and government operations. He's he's in New Water. We just talked about um, some prescription drug things that he's been that's able to- that's a big bill. That's, that's a big bill. But, you know, he, he a horse led to water, right? right? right. He was, you know, he was presented the opportunity to work on this, and I think he's become really intrigued by it, but he's still getting his footing on it because it's not where he's comfortable with. So um, I will say Jesse Pippi uh, did a really good this year, um, came in really focused, carried um, two really important bills through. Um, and I think that he's going to continue to be very decisive in his decisions on what pieces of legislation he's going to advocate for. The one issue you wish you could have covered more. I mean, so there was a really interesting bill on requiring all future pipelines that go through the state to go through um, a, a water quality review. Now, that intrigued me because obviously we've had um, some discussions about a pipeline that's going to a natural gas pipeline that's going to go under the Potomac River. There's also another pipeline that they have out on the eastern shore that they want to bring to to get some natural gas out there. I think those are just interesting questions for me. Um, because natural gas is this like emerging question that we're asking ourselves about. Um, but I, I don't know if Frederick County readers would have enjoyed it as much. I think it would have been a point of personal pleasure to uh, to get to dig into FERC and to, um, mm -hmm. which is the federal agency that de deals with pipelines, if you didn't know, and, <laughs> and uh, the Public Service Commission, which I, I just like. I just like the procedure of it. Um, Trying to think, there there was some really interesting gun legislation too, which I'm sure that our readers um, have been following from other sources um, and are going to be interested in. It's something that um, I'm not as familiar with. I'm not um, a personally a gun owner, but I've you know tried to really listen to all sides of this, especially when it comes to the handgun permit review board that we've covered extensively. Um, but you got to pick and choose your battles because. Uh, some of these, you know, statewide bills, a lot of people are covering them. Um, but I really wanted to bring the, the Frederick County stories right. to our Frederick County readers. Absolutely. And last question in two words, I'll give you three words. Summarize 90 days in Annapolis. What a whirlwind. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of thought whirlwind would be in there somewhere. <laughs> all right, Samantha, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you all for listening uh, for the last uh, 12 weeks of In Session, and we'll look forward to talking to you next session. That's right.